Hello guys and welcome to Happy Single Mums. Are you really just going to copy everything I'm saying? Yes! <laughs> Hello guys and welcome to Happy Single Mums, a podcast surrounding real single mummy life. So, here's your host, me, Khalifa. Hey guys, welcome to the Happy Single Moms podcast. I'm your host, Khalifa. Today we have an amazing lady. Her name is Paisy Mahmood. She is a wonderful woman. She is a child marriage survivor. And I firstly um, saw her page, uh, or saw you actually, when I was on the TED's TED London um, page and I saw your TED talk and I, I, I it kind of like stops you in your tracks because you're like whoa <laughs> and I listened and then do you know when you like go down like a rabbit hole so I listened to the TED talk then I followed you on Instagram then I was looking through apps all of your posts and I was like oh no I need to reach out to you because your story is amazing and I love the fact that when people have experienced things they they speak out because it's kind of like you're paving the way for other women and oftentimes we look at our, our circumstances and you know you're saying oh god why me but then you are at your story helps others and we don't understand how much it helps others even in regards to me being a single mom and the amount of dms i get with from women saying oh my god i don't know how i'm gonna do this but seeing you on the other side with my son my son being 10 they're like okay if, you, if she can do it i can do it and if you can survive child marriage i can try and be free and i can try and be an advocate and i can say no to my parents and i can you know, live my life unapologetically. So please tell the audience a bit about yourself, your story, and thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> well, thank you so much first for such a warm welcome. Um, and thank you for inviting me on your podcast. I'm, I'm really honored to be on it um, with all the incredible other guests you have. Um, so firstly, you, you gave me such a lovely introduction to add to that. Um, I'm a survivor activist and a campaigner and I work at um, ICRO Women's Rights Organization. Um, so really my campaigning is uh, pretty much um, inspired by my own uh, experiences. So I campaign to eradicate harmful practices such as FGM and child marriage, uh, virginity testing and hymenoplasty. Um, and like you said, for me, um, the reason I speak out is simply because I know what it feels like to have gone through some of these experiences. And I know that there are hundreds and thousands and millions of other women and girls uh, all over the world, you know, not just in, in one place, but all over the world experiencing these issues. And I think sometimes all you need to hear is another person speaking up just to give you that power within and the strength to go on and, you know, to deal with your situation. Um, so my background is actually fashion, uh, which I sort of just put to the side since I've been doing this campaigning work in the last two years. But you never know, maybe one day in the future, I'll revisit that avenue again. Um, so, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Because okay. I watched your um, TED talk about the end child marriage. So um, and you spoke um, a bit about your sister, um, Banaz. Did I say the name? Yeah. Um, Please tell us, because it was just, it was, uh, I felt like when you were speaking about your story, it just took you, I was there with you, you know, and my heart was breaking. And there was a particular point, I'll let you speak, say, say your story, but there was a particular point where my heart broke and you said that you were shopping for your, your wedding outfit with your mom. Mm -hmm. 
and you were in the store with her and she was picking up the garments and you were trying to play up like mum like I'm still a child I'm 16 I'm still a child I'm not ready for this and um, it just broke my heart and me being um, 34 now I'm Nigerian originally and oftentimes our parents being immigrants the one thing that they will enforce is like you have to respect the family you can't um, say, say anything back to authority and I actually stuck with me being Nigerian we had two options in life you either become a lawyer or a doctor and like you I loved fashion and my mum was like um you're not I'm not my daughter's not going to be a tailor you're not going to be making clothes you know so then I went down the law route and I've got the law degree and I've got the master's and I worked for the ministry of justice for 10 years and I hated it I hated every single moment of it so I get that kind of pressure you do not want to let your family down but you have to pave your way in life as well you know even down to the fact that my dad being Muslim when I called him up and I told him that I was pregnant he was like when are you getting married <laughs> you know and I said I'm not getting married dad he was like but then how did you get pregnant <laughs> It's like one without the other can't work. Yes. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, dad, I'm doing this by myself. And he stopped talking to me for like three months. He stopped talking to me for three months. But finally, when he actually saw my son, they, oh my God, they were like, yeah, five and six, honestly. So yeah, the baby kind of brought the whole family together again, which is That's just nice. Crazy. So please tell the audience about your story. Well, thank you first for sharing that with me as well. Um, and thank you for watching my TED talk because um, I'm pretty sure it wasn't an easy watch. Um, I, I found it hard to watch back myself actually. Um, so unfortunately, my I think my story is not rare um, or it's it's not entirely unique in, in the sense that it does happen to so many girls. Child marriage is it's not rare. It is happening as we speak. Um, so for me, I grew up in London. Um, I wasn't born here, but I grew up in London since around the age of 11. And I was coerced into a child marriage when I was 16. And that sort of just literally came out of nowhere. I didn't have a clue what that meant um, or how my life was just going to be, you know, flipped upside down as a result of it. Um, but basically one day my dad introduced this stranger who was twice my age and basically said to me that I'm going to marry him. And the reason for that, just to give you a bit of background, was because my father had felt like one of my elder sisters going into social care was bringing shame on him and that he'd lost his position in the community. And so he was trying to find a way to make up for what he felt like was a big shame on his character and, you know, his sort of place in, in the community and his hierarchy. So he sort of used me. Um, and one of my other sisters as almost like his ticket to getting his, you know, his uh, his honor back. Um, and so I, I was uh, forced into this marriage with this stranger and I was still in full time education and trying to have um, and I'm going to do quotes here because I say normal childhood, but it was everything but normal. You know, I was 16 years old and married to this um, abusive stranger who just wanted basically a wife and children. And I became pregnant um, really, really early on. I think maybe the first month and a half almost. I had no sex education. So growing up, I was really um, 
you know, my education was really controlled. And so I didn't actually know, believe it or not, how that happened. So it was a big shock to me and a big surprise um, when I found that my body was changing and I was, you know, pregnant out of nowhere. But all I knew was that I didn't want, um, you know, a child with someone who was my abuser. Although I was, you know, really scared to sort of stand up and say I wanted uh, an abortion and that I didn't want a child, I just knew in my heart it was, I had to do it. So I remember telling my parents that I wanted um, an abortion. And of course, my parents are, um, you know, quite conservative and, you know, Muslim. So that was a, that was a big no-no for them. But I insisted and insisted. Um, and somehow, you know, it, it happened, um, which I'm, I'm looking back, I'm very, very glad now being 34, you know, I, I couldn't imagine have got, having gone through that with someone I absolutely loathed. Um, and actually, at the same time, as I said, my sister, uh, Banaz, who was um, also married at 17, she was pretty much going through similar experiences, um, you know, domestic abuse, uh, forced pregnancy, um, a lot of um, mental and psychological abuse, um, and of course, sexual abuse. And during this time, me and her were basically going through the same experiences. And we lived in the same house, actually, while we were married. Oh, so, beautiful. yeah, so we moved in together, um, which now when I look back, I realized that it was my parents' way of controlling us in the same place, because they actually suggested, why don't you move in together and live with your husbands? So here we were basically children in a house with our husbands married. Um, and so that really gave, I think, both of us more of an insight into what we were both experiencing. And I think it was really heartbreaking because I knew there was nothing I could do to change her situation and the same for her. But all we could do really was, you know, just be there for each other. Um, and so we were married, I think, for a duration of about the same time, about two years each. And for my sister, the domestic abuse was just getting worse and worse by the day. And um, she had started saying to my parents that she wanted to leave her husband and she wanted to divorce him but of course my parents were completely against that and I think somehow she you know she found the determination to continue going with that she even went to the police and she reported to the police what was going on in her marriage um and sadly that police visit didn't result to anything because she wasn't taken seriously uh, the police report was never written up um, when it was eventually written up, um, they actually spelt her name wrong. So multiple failings there. Um, and she was completely let down, not just by the family, but also by the system. So even though this was happening, she decided that she just couldn't take it anymore. And actually really bravely, she left her husband and went back to my family home. And that's when the um, risk to her just really escalated because this was seen as though she was bringing further shame on the family for walking out on her marriage. Um, and, you know, the speculations, the rumors started and she, um, she was being stalked by men in the community and harassed. Um, and then shortly after that, she'd actually uh, decided that a male friend of hers who she was quite close with and supporting her, they started a romantic relationship okay. which I'm sure you can imagine just you know added another layer of danger to her and so um not long after that the rumors and the speculations became real death threats 
Um, and again, she found herself at the police station time and time again, telling the police, this is what's happening. Um, and I'm at real danger. You know, this, this is going to affect me. Um, I need support. But unfortunately, no matter how much she called out to the police, she just wasn't supported and she was completely let down. And um, in January 2006, she was missing for a couple of months. And then um, the police found her three months later and told us that she had been a victim of a so-called honor killing. So the people that were threatening her did, in fact, um, go on to take her life for what they deemed to, um, you know, to be shameful on her behalf for, for leaving her abusive child marriage. Um, she paid the ultimate price. God. And um, the people that, because, yeah, this is just, it's hurting my heart even you saying this. So in regards to you, uh, when she was missing, did you have any inkling that this, that the, the people that have been stalking her, they might have, they might have done anything? Did you um, contact the authorities? Because obviously you were still with your, your husband as well. So how was it, when you were even speaking to your parents about the fact that she was missing, did they say anything or... Um, to be honest with you, I was so young. Um, so I was 17 at the time. And I think you never really, you, you, you can't actually comprehend that something like this can happen. Yeah. And so I had never even heard of honor killings. I knew that, you know, if you break the rules, I knew this code of honor exists. You know, I was raised to sort of like stay within the, you know, the rules and, and the um the sort of honor code that was set out in front of me yeah. but I had never ever imagined that you know you're always scared because you think if I if I do this something will happen to me but I think seeing something like that play out in real life it's so hard to even take yourself mentally there so for me I just I had all these other sort of thoughts around the fact that she you know she may have just um run away or she may have just taken some space you know it never crossed my mind that for her standing up against you know abuse this would happen to her so it, I have to say it was such a confusing time and I just for the most part I didn't understand it I think it took me about a good decade to really understand this happened and and this is what you know this is what standing up to abuse meant for her so to people listening who might not know what honor killing actually is so what is honor killing and why is it so important for us to actually understand it mm -hmm. well i think as a society um we need to understand how honor-based abuse works so basically um uh, it's, it's so-called honor-based abuse where there are almost a set of codes or a set of rules that one is supposed to follow. And if those rules are broken, then you could potentially be at risk or, you know, at harm. And that harm could be anything from emotional, psychological, um, physical to uh, resulting in, you know, death. And so honor killings, um, they happen not just in, um, I, I think there's a misconception that they only happen in sort of like Middle Eastern countries or, you know, really remote places, but actually they do happen here, right here in the UK. And my sister's case wasn't the first case where it happened. There have been, yes, multiple other girls who've lost their lives for similar reasons where their families 
have um, basically felt like their behavior, even something as silly as dressing to Western, that can be a potential trigger for honor based abuse. And families feel that, you know, as a result of this, this, um, you know, their, their daughter, this girl or this woman should lose their life because they've broken the, the rule. So I think as a society, um, it's really important that we understand what we're talking about. We're literally talking about life and death mm -hmm. for people who just want to make their own choices and you know be safe and be happy. Um, so I think understanding that and what contributes that really helps us to um, be aware and to support women and girls and to have resources in place um, if anybody is you know at risk of on a base abuse. And just you never know who's going through this I think that's why it's really important for us because you may be working with someone you may have a friend who's going um, through this and they may not necessarily know this as honor-based abuse they may just feel they have a set of rules to follow whether it's um, how they dress who they speak to um, but ultimately what it comes down to is the um, the family's honor and the family's shame and so um, it, it's important that we understand how it can play out. And actually, it can escalate very quickly. I mean, in, in my sister's case, it was just a matter of months where she'd left her husband. And that escalated so quickly. It, it can happen very, very quickly. And it, it's pretty much organized crime. So it's, it's you know, from the family to the community. Um, and for me personally, I think my own experiences really helped me um, to work in this area because I, you know, I, I, I have experienced some of these issues and there are a lot of people working to raise awareness on honor-based abuse um, and to you know, make sure that girls and women have the right support systems out there. Um, so I think as a society, even though we might think we live in such a modern world and, yeah. and you know, um, these issues don't affect us, it could literally be your next door neighbor or your friend or someone at school who's going through this. So if we are aware of it, then we can actually spot it and, and perhaps offer support. Yeah. Yeah. And in regards to the perpetrators, were they cool? Um... Yes, yes. So um, three men, including my father and uncle, um, are serving life sentences for what happened to my sister. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least justice has been served in, in regards to, to that. And at least you're echoing, you're still echoing her, her name and, and bringing about awareness. Because um, yeah. I know that one, one girl under five is married every seven seconds according to save the children and why a charity such as icro is so important for us to know about the awareness that is happening even in, in the diaspora not even the the, the the age but child marriages yeah it's still happening in the, in the diaspora so why why do we need to have this echoed so much um, well, I think the first thing I just want to say is that number is is so heartbreaking yeah. because um, I'm, I'm sure you agree when you think of children, you just think freedom, you think, you know, happiness, and that's what children should be able to do. Um, and the terrifying thing is, having just gone through a pandemic, um, we know that that number has actually risen. So there's even more chance because of certain attributes of a pandemic there's even more chance of girls being married so that that really is terrifying um 
in terms of why charities like ICRO are so important, um, because they're specialists in this area and the support they provide, so whether it's advocacy, counselling, uh, or the refuge, um, or you know any sort of um, uh, support that they provide, it's catered especially to women and girls who are experiencing so-called unabasive views. Um, and it's important that the women affected by this uh, in the Middle East and North African and also Afghan girls know that there is a place or there, there is someone they can turn to who specializes in what they've gone through. I think, especially if, um, you know, the issues that you're experiencing are not talked about as much and they're not known as much, you may feel like nobody will know what I'm going through. But it's really important that you, you have a safe space where you can go to free of judgment and they actually are trained and they're specialists in dealing with these issues um and icro was actually set up by diana nami for this very purpose because she wanted to help kurdish middle eastern um you know iranian north african and afghan women who have specifically gone through these issues and to also educate professionals and um you know speak to schools so we're not just dealing with the women and girls who need the support from us, but we also want to make sure that police officers, you know, people who are um, coming into contact with girls just like my sister, because clearly for them, they didn't pick up on the seriousness of this issue. But one of the important things that we do is training professionals so that they are aware in schools, in social care, um, in policing, you know, midwifery, like all of these places where women and girls go to, and we are aware of these issues and we can actually, it, it can just start with a conversation or it can start with a question. Mm -hmm. So I think it's incredibly important that anybody who's experiencing on a base abuse knows that we are there for them and we're able to offer that support um, and a safe space, even if it's just to question what they're going through and to question their options. Um, I think it's incredibly important, yeah. Yeah, because I worked for um, social services for four years and I worked within the MASH team. So you used to get like loads of referrals. So um, I feel like with immigrants to FGM, we used to get loads of referrals. So as soon as a woman would go in and they, the a midwife would identify that she's had that, they would contact us and they would contact her just to make sure that if this has happened to you, make sure like she's not traveling, it's not going to happen to her, her child so I think that in regards to FGM there's, there's a massive shift so with 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 um the social services so we're kind of switched on in regard in that respect but me being I'm, I'm originally from Nigeria and um child marriage is prevalent there especially in um the outskirts the northern area but what I when I was doing research for this podcast it says um in Nigeria 40 percent of the poorest girls are married by 15 compared to three percent of the richest and um there's like a, a economic status the same way you said that your father wanted um his, his status back, his honour back in society. Do you think that more needs to be done in regards to speaking to the older generation that look, even, you know, like your child is not cattle, your child is not a battering um, tool for you to get further economically, um, emotionally. So you're, you're, you're looked upon as uh, someone in society because it even reminds me of um, a film I can't remember the title now where the the chap was married to um, a white lady he was an Asian guy and he 
got his children married off, but one of his kids was was gay. What's I can't oh, remember the film. Uh, it was quite a big film. Yes. Oh God. But, I do remember that yeah, film. But because he was married to a white woman, he kind that was kind of like shameful to him. So he had to try yeah. and um make sure his children were yeah, married like off. Yeah. yeah. So I remember. Yeah, I honestly think that the old, as much as we're doing the or you're you're doing the groundwork, people are doing podcasts, but the older generation need to they need to realize that this isn't this isn't it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you mentioned the um, economic um, status. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is actually one of the biggest drivers because um, it, it contributes in the way that families feel, especially if they have a lot of gals, they feel that she will be a burden. And so she will cost the family more. Whereas if they give her, you know, away to an older man or to, to you know, just just a stranger she no longer has that cost on the family um and for a lot of people it's actually in places where uh, poverty is a real issue this is one of their biggest drivers um just as you mentioned the social status social status is a huge driver and you know it was actually a big factor in both me and my my sister's marriage so i think a lot more needs to be done in like you say conversating just with everyone and that includes the older generation, that includes, you know, fathers, because men do play a huge role in these issues. Um, because if they don't actively take part, you know, when when you have a man who is willing to marry a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, you, you know, that's somebody who is actively perpetrating this abuse. Yeah. A 15-year-old child should never, ever be married and she should never be put in that position. She should absolutely be you know, free and safe from the harm of child marriage. And that's anywhere in the world. It it should just never be an option. It should never be available um, for girls to have to go through this. So I think we need to have more open conversation about the harms that this is causing because girls are so often seen as, um, you know, a burden or the ticket to somebody's status. But actually what is being missed here is that girls have their own identities you know we we have our own wishes we have our own dreams we have our own aspirations we are all you know entire human beings that have so much to offer and you know we're so much more than as you said somebody's ticket to looking good in their community you know it's just heartbreaking that somebody could be used in that way and that actually cuts them off from all of their potential you know all of their futures um and we know that actually uh empowering girls and allowing girls to be who they want to be has so many benefits for our societies for you know our economy for everything and first and foremost for girls themselves so absolutely agree so much more conversation needs to happen and definitely involving the older generation involving men involving young people um so that they're aware of their rights and they're aware of their choices and you know um their safety yeah and it's a bit of an oxymoron as well if you think about with the older generation it's kind of like don't talk to boys don't talk to boys don't talk to boys and then you're getting married yeah it is yeah and and this is where again that power and that control comes in it's where you know we we say 
we we set the rules and you just follow them it's only okay when we say okay it's okay you know like you say we're being raised um girls are often being raised not to speak to boys not to have relationships and then all of a sudden they're being told that they need to go from that to a full-on relationship that comes with so much responsibility and so much risk of abuse because we're, we're talking about huge power dynamics here generally speaking um, you know, the man is at least 10 years older than the gal. So that's somebody who already has an upper hand. And, you know, there's a there's um, a power dynamic there that the gal just cannot navigate through. And that leaves her at risk of, you know, financial control, uh, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, all sorts of abuse. And I remember in your TED talk, you did say that on the wedding night, you said to um, the man, um, can we be friends? And then he got really angry i know that right now the government is one of the campaigns that you're you're working on um their pledge to um, raise the legal age of marriage to 18 in england um should that because it's just been spoken about isn't it it's not actually solidified is it yes exactly yeah, yeah. It hasn't happened yet. Um, so we've got all of our fingers and toes crossed um i think it's great that the government has committed um, to they've actually in, uh, included this in the Vogue strategy so it's brilliant that they've committed to this change I think it's so long overdue um, you know the marriage act is something that it doesn't fit this aspect of it doesn't fit with our society we're so aware of um, you know the harms of child marriage and we're so aware of how we can go further to protect children. So there's absolutely no reason why in a country like the UK, we should be comfortable with a 16 year old yeah. being in a marriage. Um, so I think, you know, uh, applause to them for doing that, but it needs to go further because when um, at the moment, so what the government has committed to is simply changing the age. So currently it's, you can get married at 16 with parental consent then but they're going to remove that option so that you can only get married at 18 and they're only uh, talking about registered marriages but what we need to do is make sure that we're talking about all sorts of marriages so religious marriages customary marriages traditional marriages and any other type of marriage that can happen because if we only deal with the registered marriages we're not actually um, protecting every child because that means that if a parent wants to, even at 18, force somebody into a marriage, they can simply have a registered marriage. Yeah. And that can happen even at 15. So the law then doesn't protect everyone. So I think we need to make sure that they go that step further. And that's actually what we're still continuing to campaign on. While we're really happy and you know support the commitment, we want to make sure that we protect every single child. It doesn't matter how the marriage happens, it shouldn't happen. And that's that's a very big, um, big part of the campaign, yeah. Are there any other live campaigns that you're working on at the moment? Yes, so we're also working on, um, and this is something I very briefly touched on during my talk. Um, we're working on banning both virginity testing and hymenoplasty. Mm -hmm. um, so for anyone who might actually not be familiar who is listening and thinking what is virginity testing and what is hymenoplasty um, virginity unfortunately is, is I think we'll all be familiar with the fact that it is a, con a social construct and it's something that for centuries and you know for decades has been um, you know has been 
almost a, a burden for women and girls to have to prove and it's seen as this sign of purity and attached to value and worth um i mean i think we can all remember growing up and, and hearing about you know even at school or in pop music about somebody being a virgin or not being a virgin and you know have crude uh, sort of labels attached to them okay. so what we're doing is and um, we have a campaign called virginity does not define me and we want to um, break away from those social constructs those really harmful myths that surround virginity um, that claim whether somebody is a virgin or not their worth or their value is measured based on that um, and so what happens when virginity testing happens is it's a physical test that um, professionals, so-called professionals, carry out to determine to the family whether that girl is a virgin. And it usually happens on their wedding night. Um, there is also another form, and it's quite a traditional way of measuring um, whether the girl is a virgin. And that's on their wedding night. They're given a white sheet, mm -hmm. and that's to take back to the family, um, which is uh, sadly what I experienced in my marriage um, and that was for my family to sort of be able to um, say that you know they had raised me right and that you know I was worth or you know my value was there as a as a person which is you know really sad because again that dehumanizes somebody and really just narrows you down to a just a harmful misconception and a harmful construct um and so the hymenoplasty comes in when um, girls, for example, have had sex and they are taught or they are made to believe that going through a procedure where a um, hymen is recreated for them, they can then um, exactly, yeah, it, it's really heartbreaking and, and just really, really sad. And um, it's a form of abuse, essentially, this is abusive. Um, and they're then told that if they have this procedure, they will be re-virginized and um, potentially bleed on their wedding night. But okay. what we are really trying to campaign on. And yeah, it's um, and it, it's actually not none of this is based on scientific evidence. Mm -hmm. So this is all harmful misconceptions and, um, you know, just constructs that people enforce on girls. And so. Part of the campaign is to ensure that we ban this procedure that is happening in the UK, that, um, yes, exactly, yeah, it's actually legal. So um, places are, you know, clinics are advertising this on the internet under this false narrative that they can re-virginize women and that they can, you know, be pure on their wedding nights and, and just all harmful messaging. Oh, yeah, it's it's really terrible. Um, and again, actually, we're in a really good place for that. So the government um, has committed to looking at virginity testing. Mm -hmm. However, we're trying to ensure that hymenoplasty is included in that um, because it is a very dangerous thing that can lead girls to actually experience um, on a base abuse and even on a killing because the test, uh, oh, sorry, the procedure it's not guaranteed. So you could go through that procedure and still potentially be at risk of um, not being able to prove that you are a virgin. So it, the both of them are just really harmful and forms of violence against women and girls, really, they're abusive. Yeah. And it's so funny that you, um, as you were talking, it reminds me because I went to all girls school and mm -hmm. um, I had a, a lot of friends who are predominantly Asian. Um, and we, when we would talk when, in secondary school, some of them 
were that you don't realize how important the virginity is to them because I when they would have boyfriends and obviously I had I, I can never I can never forget there was a particular day one of my friends she used to wear a headscarf mm-hmm. um, but she would take it off when she would get into school and her dad saw her one time because he used to drop her off to school her dad actually saw her walking into school and taking off the headscarf and I will never forget he was he pulled her back and he was dragging her he was shouting at her and um after that yeah we didn't see her in school again we did not see her at all in school and nothing was done and another thing that I want to um, add is that a couple of my, of, of my friends in school they actually would have intercourse but um anally because okay. they actually wanted to preserve their virginity and I used to say to them that doesn't isn't that painful they were like well I have to stay a virgin on my wedding night so there are other rippling effects that people are, um, are doing that aren't spoken about but this was happening in school I'm 34 now so it's just it, yeah the, the, the virginity cloud that they ha- like that has been placed over our heads even me being Nigerian as well it's just ridiculous you could lose your virginity riding a horse you could lose your virginity exactly. using a tampon you know so it's yeah. it's such a fake fallacy and why is it that a guy doesn't have to be a virgin on the wedding night why is the burden placed so much on us Yes, yeah, it's really targeted, actually. Um, and, and this is why it is a form of um, abuse and violence against women and girls, because it goes back again to this narrative of controlling women's bodies and choices, because, as you explained, um, you know, no one is uh, certainly born with a hymen. It's actually scientifically proven that we are not all born with hymen. So therefore, you could actually be born without a hymen. But there is this perception that if it's not there, it must have been lost through a sexual activity. And as you mentioned, you can just simply ride a horse or, you know, you or have an accident, use a t- tampon and then your hymen is broken so it's it's not that it's something necessarily attached to sexual activity but this is where the awareness is so important and you know it was really heartbreaking to listen to you talking about your friends at school who would take such dangerous measures because you know of course um if somebody is not uh, aware of the side effects of, for example, anal sex or any other activity they may take part in, it could actually be very dangerous for them to do this without the awareness because they're simply trying to avoid this this issue of losing their virginities. And it it really is very heavily, um, you know, ingrained in girls that your worth simply comes down to this thing. And we're really, with this campaign, we're really trying to make sure that we focus on other things such as somebody's identity, you know, somebody's um, aspirations and their dreams and not necessarily these things that have no scientific value or evidence. And, you know, if you actually question it, it's built on nothing. Yeah, It's built on misconception and, um, you know, control. Ultimately, this comes down to controlling women and girls' bodies, because as you said, it isn't something that affects men. It's simply directed at women. Um, and it's another way to, you know, put us into okay. some sort of path that, that is deemed as, as pure, you know. So it's, it's just, it's terrifying that it's so present even in today's society, because this is something that's happening right here in the UK and clinics are, openly advertising this 
and professionals, so-called professionals, are giving certificates out to families to say that their daughters are virgins. You know, and, and when you think about this, that's a very dehumanizing, humiliating, and, you know, psychologically impactful, you know, event. It's very traumatic to go through, to have to place yourself in that position to prove something that could potentially not even be there. Yeah. So, so it causes ongoing harm for girls. And, you know, you think about the, the worth and the value factor. We're telling girls that without this, you don't have any value. Yeah. You know, it, it's just so harmful and so dangerous. So hopefully this is something that we'll also see coming to um coming to law very soon. I wanted to ask you in regards to your TED talk, you talk about um the failings. You got um failed by um the registry office and um, by the GP. Um by your sister got failed by the police um you got failed by the school. Um what's being done to actually um to bring about more awareness for for for, for for different organizations for them to actually see that look this person's screaming out for help mm -hmm. um i think there's a few things so the first thing would be is to have the right training mm -hmm. and i think this is where specialist organizations come in and people with um, you know, the specialist knowledge in, on these issues can actually train. I'm not talking about a, you know, um, a two sort of two sheet piece of paper that just briefly sums up the issue. You know, we need to actually get to the bottom of these issues and really talk about what is um, the driver you know, of these issues, because ultimately it all comes down to control of women and girls. And so I think without that training professionals can't spot what is going on and there needs to be you know the right funding this is something that the government must ensure that specialist organizations like ICRA have so they have the funding when women and girls are presenting let's say through social services or through the police that we can support them and, and offer them safe refuge or counseling and I think as a society, we also need to engage every member of our society in these conversations. So young people at school, these should be conversations that we're having with young people when we're talking about sex education and relationships. We need to be talking about FGM, we need to be talking about child marriage and virginity and you know all these issues that they could potentially face so that they're not just hearing about these issues in their home through a very controlled um, sort of uh, avenue. They're actually hearing about these issues as abuse because that's what they are. Because for so many young people, you know, I, I never heard about FGM at school. I never heard about um, marriage, you know, child marriage at school. I didn't hear about honor-based abuse at school. So children need to also be empowered in this conversation so that they know if this is something that comes up at home, they can turn to someone, their teacher or their support worker who actually knows about these issues and would not escalate the risk to them, but they actually can deal with this in the right way. Um, I think there's also one thing we need to break down around these issues is sometimes people can look at these um, harmful practices through a very narrow lens of, you know, maybe a cultural issue or maybe a religious issue. But we need to, I think, remove that and, and strip that away and actually see young people, you know, children as people experiencing abuse. We should never allow somebody's identity 
um, you know, whether it's their religion, it's their race, it's their beliefs, anything like that to be a barrier to them accessing support. Mm. And I think sometimes, certainly in the case of my sister, she just wasn't believed. I think the police just didn't understand this person can actually, you know, lose their life over what they're saying they'll lose their life over. Yeah. You know, she went to the police saying that she has a boyfriend and the entire community is against her. And I think, you know, cultural barriers sometimes are in the way of vulnerable people accessing support because the people on the other side might not necessarily understand the dynamics. You know, they, they won't understand where this person's coming from. So I think we, we need to be, you know, aware, of course, of, of identities and different faiths and, and cultures and races. We need to be aware of those issues um, that, you know, that come up for people. But we also need to treat anyone who's going through abuse as a person experiencing abuse and just see them for that. And I think as a society, um, sometimes it feels like we have a long way to go for that because I think these issues are, you know, sometimes um, just seen as cultural issues, but they're not, you, you know, you could be actually, we, we have seen um, child marriage cases of British born girls whose families don't want them to be pregnant outside of marriage. And so they force them into marriage. You know, you hear about child marriage cases in the Orthodox community. There's, this can happen to anybody anywhere. And the important thing to remember is that here with, we're talking about conservative people who want to control women and girls. And ultimately this is what it comes down to. You know, any one of us could experience this because of, the um you know the the people who who are raising us be based on their beliefs and the communities that we grow up in and i think having that open mind especially in a city like london you know it's so diverse we we have so many different people around us and it's important to remember that just because i can see somebody is in a headscarf it doesn't mean they're experiencing it but just because i can see somebody not in a headscarf it doesn't mean that she's not experiencing it. So anybody could actually be going through the abuse. And I think we need to keep an open mind. And sometimes all it starts with is just a conversation. Have you heard about this? Or do you know about this? Yeah. And sometimes if someone comes to you and says, you know, just for example, do you know about virginity testing? It might just make you think, oh, actually, I did hear about this. So I did experience this. And it just gives you that sort of comfort to know that somebody else sees you and somebody else sees what you're going through and could potentially help you. So if you could um, speak to your younger self at 16, and if anyone's listening right now that's actually experienced um, childhood marriage, what would be one thing you'd like to say to yourself and to someone listening that's experiencing it right now and they don't know what to do? Oh, what I would say to my 16-year-old self, I like this question. Um, I would say to my 16-year-old self, even though it's really, really hard and things just, things feel like they'll never get better, one day things will get better. And, um, and you will hopefully help someone else going through this. Because I never thought that when I was going through this. I just thought, this is my life forever. Yeah. And now I, I get to connect with um, incredible 
women and girls all around the world and it, it really is something that you know even just talking to you today and and listening to you about um you know the things that you've you've seen all the things that um are happening let's say in your country it it's always so um so enriching and it's always so educational for me so in a way my experiences have allowed me to connect with so many women and gals and you know that is really empowering so my 16 year old self would be would be happy with with today where I am yeah what what advice would you give to a woman that is actually currently in a in a child marriage and um, she doesn't know where to go and what to do um, I would say the first thing I want you to know is if you're experiencing child marriage is it's not your fault and that you absolutely don't have to go through this. Um, it's wrong and it's abuse. No 16 year old, no child uh, should be in that position. And I want you to know that there is support out there. There is help out there. Um, and there are people who will be able to do that for you if you are willing to seek support. Um even if you just want to talk through your options. So you can always contact ICRO. If you go on our website, just icro.org.uk, you can find out how to get in touch with us. There are phone numbers in various languages as well that you can speak to someone. And you can simply just ask us, you know, any questions you have or any support that you need. And we can talk through your options with you. Um, the reason why I asked you that actually is because I have um, a lot of women oftentimes they DM me and they haven't actually started the because the podcast is called Happy Single Mums so they are actually in the process of understanding what single motherhood is like so I oftentimes get women that are researching like okay she's a single mom how is she living what is she doing so it's just in case anyone ever listens and yeah they just want to get support where can people find you on social media? Um, so all my socials are under the same name, which is Paisy Malika. Um, uh, so that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, pretty much everything. And also the organizations is just ICRO on um, all the social uh, platforms, which is I-K-W-R-O. Again, I want to say thank you so much for taking out the time and coming on the Happy Single Moms podcast. You are a rock star and your sister is your cheerleader right now. You're just going to go from glory to glory. And thank you for picking you. Thank you for being a survivor and paving the way for other people. Because like I said earlier, oftentimes when we're going through such a horrible state, we don't know why it is, but it's actually paving the way for someone else. So yeah, you are a rock star and if no one has ever said thank you I wholeheartedly want to thank you thank you that means so much to me and I'm really honored to be on your platform thank you for giving me the space to talk about these issues um it's it's incredibly heartwarming when people want to make space to have these conversations so thank you for doing that and also for your time thank you so much I'm breaking your arms I lose control when I get there